Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. Today, we're going to talk with uscfootball.com beat writer and columnist Dan Weber about USC summer workouts and a lot of your questions. You guys have been sending in a bunch of questions. You can tell the summer is coming to an end. Fall is coming up. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'll try to answer each and every one of your questions. If you want to send one in, podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address. Um, or you can give us a call. The number now, it's changed. So if you've called before, it's a different number. 641-715-3900. 641-715-3900. And you have to put in this mailbox code 816-646. Put that in there. Leave us a voicemail. We'd love to play it on the air. Or you can always go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page. You can leave a voicemail right there as well. So lots of ways to get a hold of us. Um, plenty of different ways, and we'd love to hear from you. And like I said, a lot of questions today, so we'll just jump right into it with Dan Weber. What's up, Dan? How you doing? Hey, uh, good. Uh, always good to uh, get to do this uh, right after uh, one of the player-run practices. So uh, uh, let's get at it. Yeah, so uh, and what, before we jump in, I wanted to say uh, thanks to our sponsor, Michael Moline Real Estate. Uh, if you're in Southern California, looking to buy or sell a property, you can definitely check out michaelmolinerealestate.com. Uh, he's true Trojan based in Beverly Hills, and you can give him a call at 310-275-4688. We'll have more information on him uh, coming up at the at the end of the show as well. So definitely check him out. Uh, we've talked about it a bunch of times. We're definitely going to get him or one of the guys on the USC Stats team that they're at the Coliseum on the podcast uh, pretty soon. And um, Dan, you, you mentioned those, those player throwing sessions, and we've been going to them the last couple of months. Uh, we were at one again Tuesday morning this morning, and uh, not... I guess it wasn't as, as uh, highly attended as some of the other ones were. Some big names were missing. But what did you think about the workout? Well, I mean, you know, one of the real purposes of this thing is to get uh, the first-year guys, as many of them, up to speed as possible. And they're really getting a lot of opportunities. And, uh, you know, they just, uh, you know, both quarterbacks, uh, uh, you know, a, a number of the, you know, the running backs, uh, wide receivers, uh, you know, you see – a lot of teaching being done in the secondary. And, you know, you, Chris Hawkins or Matt Lopes is, you know, explaining to guys, even if, uh, like on a day like today when, uh, you know, Kevin Seymour wasn't there and uh, Dory Jackson wasn't there and, uh, I guess Marvell Tell wasn't there. Uh, John Plattenberg wasn't there. So, you know, you might have had your almost your starting group not there. And so the next guys are getting a whole lot of work and, uh, you know, there's, you know, they have some, you know, their busted plays and things like that. But you do see a lot of, you know, a lot of teaching going on. I know I talked to Cody afterwards, and he basically said he thinks of himself now as a coach. He said he loves football. He loves coaching it. He loves, you know, the attitude of the young kids. And he said that's kind of how the approach has been is just to, you know, get them as acclimated as possible, uh, you know, to what's going on. And, uh, you know, you, you feel with the upperclassmen, you know, they've had a year doing this and, uh, you know, they just feel like they're way farther along, um, than they were last year, that everything was new and everything was trying to figure it out, trying to, you know, learn how to go to up tempo and all the things they do. And they do an awful lot of that without even thinking about it now. And, uh, you know, that's it. They really, they get, you know, four and five quarterbacks in there, on a day like this and uh they get a lot of work yeah it was uh it was interesting watching and and kind of seeing the progression throughout the summer workouts i talked to a lot a lot of different players dan and i think to the man they seemed like it was it was well organized and uh it seems like it's useful uh for the players and helping them kind of get ready for fall camp it almost feels like a, a real practice at times it goes a little longer there's still time to have fun um you know i think they're you know Get maybe I don't know. Let's say burnt out, but they they want to try to have some fun. This is their final week of like the conditioning workouts, and they get to take a, a you know next week off, and they seem kind of excited about that. But it seemed to me preparing these guys pretty well for you know what's going to be a you know a pretty tough fall camp. Yeah, no, I mean I think that's all. I said 
you know, Cody doesn't like to talk about himself, and, and, and he's had an awful lot of people who want to talk to him this year about him, about Heisman trophies and all that. And, and he just gets, uh, you know, he tries to take off if he can because he doesn't want to talk about himself. But I said today, talk about these guys. And he said, oh, yeah, I like to talk about, you know, what I'm seeing with these kids. And, and the thing he just can't get away with is, uh, you know, talking about is how hard they're working. They really are working hard. He said, I'm just so excited about, you know, being around guys who, who want to work so hard. And he said, I don't know what it is. And I said, you know, I said a little bit, it remind, remind me of the 2002 team, the turnaround team that got it going, and by the end of the year, might have been the best team in the country, and, and Carson Palmer, Troy Palomale, in the year, Mike Williams came in as a freshman and just dominated. And uh, Cody said, well, he said, I don't even want to think about comparing us to that team except for this. He said, I hope we can compare with them as far as how hard we're working and, you know, how good we want to be. And he said, I'll... I'll leave it at that. Uh, he said. Uh, he said. I don't. I don't know that you can, you know, talk about these guys without talking about how uh, how hard they're working, how committed they are, you know, to being a good football team. So, uh, you know, uh, that's all you can ask right now. I think. Cody Kessler's in an interesting position, and you got to talk to him today, really for the first time. He's kind of uh, ducked out a little bit from some of the other workouts when uh, players were available. They weren't available in June, uh, only in July. But he had great numbers last year, 39 touchdowns and only five picks. Still some criticism about, you know, getting a lot of the stats against some of the worst teams on the schedule. Um, you know, the team won nine games. There's a couple, you know, late collapses. I think there's a lot of, it seems like there's a lot of pressure on Cody Kessler, but being in the second year of Sark's system, of course, he's had Clay Helton through the whole time, but he seems poised to be able to, you know, take that next step. It's tough though, Dan, because his numbers were so good last year. I mean, if he plays the same as last year, you'd think that'd be good enough, but I'm not sure it's going to be. I mean, I think the expectations are this team wins the Pac-12 South. And I think for Cody Kessler to do that, he'll probably need even better numbers than he had last year. Uh, yeah. And I think the, the numbers that are going to matter are, are the ones in the Pac-12 South and the Pac-12. I think it's just going to be, you know, win those games and, uh, and, and I, I'm one of those people who they don't like that analysis so much. So, well, he did this against these guys, and he did this against these guys. And some of that is it's game planning, and it's uh, you know, do you turn him loose? Do you attack? You know, do you you know, are you afraid to kind of you know against uh, you know the better teams or teams where you're holding on in the second half? Do you turn him loose? And they didn't always do that. Um, I think you know the last two years. Uh, he's, you know, gotten them through, like, say, Stanford game, uh, and, you know, made the big, big play when he's had to. But there were games when he didn't get the chance to do that. And I'm not sure that's Cody's, uh, you know, problem. That, that, you know, I think that was a, you know, a play calling and, and, and game planning, uh, issue as much as anything. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think he looks, you know, I mean, I think what you want to see this year is that this is a football team that, doesn't worry about who they're playing or, uh, you know, second half, how do we hold on and all that. When they just go out and attack people, uh, I did talk to Antoine Woods today, and from the defensive side of the ball, I said, what's going to be different? You got more depth. You got, you know, you know, you don't have Leonard, but you got, you know, you got some pretty decent talent. You got five, you know, seniors. And, uh, what's going to be different? He said, we're going to attack more. At the line of scrimmage, we're gonna they're going to let us make plays, and I think if that attitude you know carries through the whole team, offensively and defensively, uh, I think you know that changes everything. And I think that'll whether that'll change Cody's numbers, uh, I think it'll just uh, you know change the way you, you think about him because I don't think there was anything in the you know oh he can't do it against this team, but he could do it against that team. I I really didn't ever you know see that. I thought. It was a case of more of USC was a little hesitant to try to do some things against some teams in some situations. And then, you know, we're forced to do silly things and trick plays and stuff like that that just didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, whereas you would have liked to just see them come out second half, throw the ball like they did in the first half, not worry about the clock, not worry about the numbers. And just put up, uh, you know, just score the ball, you know, and don't worry about going three and out with three incompletions. Uh, that's, to me, that's not the, 
that negativity is not the way to think about it. You think about let's uh, you know move the chains, score the football, and uh, you know if our defense you know we run out of bodies, uh, we've got enough points on the board, we're going to be fine. And, uh, and to me, that's that's the way to go. So I'm not one that thinks Cody's got to prove you know prove himself, other than bring this team together and win those football games that uh, that they should have won last year. You know, you bring up a great point with uh, Antoine Woods. We talked to Steve Sarkeesian after the Holiday Bowl on his conference call. He had mentioned that. We've talked about that before. He'd mentioned that they want to be more of an attacking-style defense and be more aggressive. The fact that players are saying it now um, is really interesting. And and I think depth is a big part of it, Dan. And I got to talk to Kenny Bigelow today, so we did a little defensive line talk this morning. And, um, I mean, he's just he's amazing. He goes, last year we had like five bodies on the defensive line. And now there's all these freshmen coming in. They just feel like, even though Leonard Williams is gone, they just feel it's just like a, a weight lifted off your shoulders, he was saying, that you have all these people here. There's people to back you up. And I think the players seem a little bit more confident with the depth chart being filled in with that number one recruiting class. And I think that that'll allow the coaches to be more confident. The proof will be in the pudding, Dan, if we see them not blitz for a whole game again or if they, yeah. if they don't. But I get the feeling that they're going to. Yeah, I like the, the idea that the uh – the players reinforce the coaches and the coaches reinforce the players. And it's kind of, you know, both ways work. Uh, you know, the ability, uh, to know, uh, what you're doing and the ability to know that you got somebody behind you and you got somebody that you can rotate in there. And, and you don't have to be worrying, you know, when you start the second half about how you're going to finish up in the fourth quarter. You just go out there and play and you just try to win the play and, you know, and dominate right you know, dominate the day right there and uh, and not overstate. I think maybe you know, it was the first year for almost everybody on that staff, except for a couple, uh, dealing with limited scholarships. So I thought, you know, that would have been my biggest issue with bringing in a new staff. You, you know, you, you, you know, you had had two years of experience dealing with limited scholarships, and uh, I just thought that it possibly got them out thinking themselves at times last year. And, uh, you know, there, there maybe really was nothing you could do. You maybe just have to go out and play to your strengths and uh, put up as many numbers as you can and just play as hard as you can and see what happens rather than trying to outthink, you know, what if, uh, you know, what if this or what if that. You just probably got to just go for it. Um, all right, Dan, well, let's jump into some of these questions. Uh, I wanted to talk, you know, a little bit about the team. A lot of the questions are kind of about – NCAA stuff and other things. So I wanted to uh, at least talk about some of the, the observations we've made. And of course, uh, Pac-12 Media Day is coming up next week. Late next week, we'll be there. We'll have all stuff from that, and uh, we'll continue. There'll be a couple more uh, player throwing sessions, uh, player run practices before fall camp starts on August eighth. So uh, we'll have plenty to talk about. And again, you can send your questions podcast at uscfootball.com. But we'll go with uh, Earl in West LA first. Dan, he said Dan Weber's article on uh, sports network revenue. And the low ranking and income of the Pac-12 network was very interesting. I thought the most shocking figure was the NHL network is in three times as many homes as the Pac-12 network, with income nearly three times as much as well. Do you think the Pac-12 has painted themselves in a corner with their price demands to the major cable providers? Consumers are demanding lower costs and are actively using alternatives to cable television. It seems time is on the side of the cable providers as this standoff enters its fifth year. What does the Pac-12 need to do to resolve this standoff? And uh, do you think they will? That's Earl in West L.A. Well, actually, Earl, I think one of the numbers that was interesting to me is the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are charging the same. Uh, so, you know, it isn't limiting the Big Ten. It is, you know, about five times as many subscribers as, as the Pac-12. So, uh, I mean, obviously, I mean, one of the things that hurts, and everybody knows it, and it's been the, the, the biggest negative about the Pac-12 is, I think the the biggest uh, area in the country for DirecTV is is basically Southern California. I think it's something like 1.4 million subscribers, and to miss out on that, you know, real nucleus, and a lot of those are sports, uh, you know, sports fans, and you know, they're not giving up their DirecTV because of all the other, you know, things they get, and uh, you know, and and DirecTV said, you know, we want to we want lower rates, and we're not. We know the Pac-12 isn't in that much demand. Uh, there's so much else to do out here, obviously. 
And uh, so basically, they, you know, the problem the Pac-12's got is with 12 million, 12.3 million subscribers, uh, and deals with a number of other, you know, like four pretty major national cable companies. If they drop the rates to uh, DirecTV, they've got to drop all the rates to everybody. I think uh, in uh, um, John Wilner's uh, article today, I mean, uh, the Wall Street Journal wrote today that the, um, uh, I guess, uh, AT&T is going to take over DirecTV. It looks like all the barriers to that. It's like a $49 billion acquisition. Uh, and U.S. Or, and uh, Pac-12 has a relationship with AT&T, with Uverse, and uh, has, uh, a, a, you know, fairly substantial relationship with it. However, uh, so they take over DirecTV. The problem is the Pac-12 getting on DirecTV is so far down the totem pole, you know, in terms of anything that AT&T and DirecTV are going to care about when they when this merger goes through. And if they drop, you know, for example, let's say, you know, 20 cents off the, you know, instead of 80 cents a month, they get 60 cents a month, as, as Wilmer pointed out. They'd have to generate four million more subscribers, say, to justify doing that. Whether they could get four million out of the DirecTV, maybe. Uh, what they would do is they'd have more subscribers. They still wouldn't have any more income. Uh, it would still be about the same income. So this is a this is a very hard problem, Earl. And obviously, so far, the Pac-12 does not have an answer. But it's tough when. Uh, when the Big Ten and the uh, SEC are in 60, 65 million homes, and you're only in 12 million, that's a really big deal. And uh, for yeah, so and you know it's funny, Dan, because you mentioned that, and there was a bunch of different articles that came out today. Our, our colleague Michael Lev was a little more optimistic. He thinks that there's a chance that when this goes through, that they push it through, and Directv customers will have the Pac-12 network by the time USC's opener against Arkansas State or the second game against Idaho. Uh, which are both going to be on Pac-12 Network. He seems to be a little bit more uh, optimistic, but it's a really interesting dynamic. And we, yeah. we had. I mean, co- I, I think miracles are possible, but <laughs> for all of that to happen that quickly, yeah, uh, for something that's really can't be high up on that. Now, you know, maybe there's some you know hidden USC guy or Pac-12 guy. Uh, you know, in in the leadership of one, you know, especially at AT&T. I don't know. And maybe somebody's got some kind of a personal interest in it, but just the normal nature. I mean, all we're all we know now is that the FCC is probably going to approve it, but then it still has to happen. And then for it to filter down, you know, to college football by the start of the season, that would be, I think, kind of a miracle. Uh, to be honest, I just can't imagine. You know, it's that that big a deal as far as, you know, those two entities are concerned. Um, so we'll see. Uh, I, I wouldn't – I thought John Wilner, who's probably reported on this more than anybody else, said the more he studied it and the more he looked at it today and the more he tried to read about it, he has no clue what's going to happen, <laughs> no clue at all. And I would agree with John on this one. Uh, I mean, I hope Mike's right, and that would be great for – Awful lot of USC people have DirecTV in the, you know, in Southern California, but uh, but I'd be I'd be a little surprised. And uh, Earl in West LA, thanks for that question. And the the article he was referring to, Dan, is a piece you wrote, and I think it was a response to something Clay Travis had written. And then we ended up having Clay Travis on the podcast last week. So if you go to peristylepodcast.com or however you digest the, these podcasts, um, our Wednesday show from last week, we actually had Clay Travis on and kind of talking all about it and. It was interesting to me, Dan, to see the number of people that are actually cutting the cord. There's so many people that are getting rid of DirecTV or Fios or AT&T or Time Warner or whatever. And they're just saying, oh, we're going to use like Hulu and and streaming and stuff like that. It, so I think that's part of the, the issue here. Well, and I think, you know, the fact that, you know, ESPN's lost 4 million subscribers. Uh, and, and they're not alone. I mean, you know, the Food Network, uh, the Weather you know, Channel, all of them are losing you know, subscribers. I mean, everybody, I mean, I think the general, uh, you know, cable uh, loss is 7 or 8% uh, across the board. And you say, oh, you know, big deal. Well, 
if you're ESPN and you've got whatever it is, 90 million subscribers or something to that effect, and they're paying you six and a half dollars a month, you lose about, you know, five million or four million of those. That's like real money. You know, that adds up big time really quickly. And, and how that works, I mean, you know, we're seeing the, uh, the issues with ESPN, for example, with, uh, you know, Colin Coward's negotiations, you know, they weren't able to keep him even though they tried. Uh, they've lost some really big salary people, you know, Bill Simmons and, and Keith Olbermann, and uh, they're not able to do things they said they wanted to do. So, uh, you know, ESPN, uh, is, it's going to be interesting to see where this all goes. And, you know, I know everybody had foreseen that down the road, you know, the uh, uh, contracts for college, you know, sports, because it's such great live programming, you can't, you know, you've got to watch the commercials if you're going to watch the games, and it's the best, you know, demographics and the best of all, all the things you want if you're an advertiser on television, um, and that that would keep driving these, uh, you know, contracts up uh, over the years. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens down the road, you know, in another four or five years, uh, where does this go? You know, do they, you know, sustain this, uh, you know, the, you know, the losing memberships, losing subscriptions, uh, and where does this all break out, you know, in terms of all the other ways you can access the programming and all that? I don't think we know. I think this is really going to be an area we're all going to have to pay attention to, and I don't know that anybody has an answer right now. Um, okay, Dan, thanks for that. Let's see. Let's go to... Uh, we had a question about, and it, it's not, I guess it's, uh, it might be a little bit of recruiting, but I wanted to, we, we, we end up talking about this a lot, Dan, so I wanted to get your thoughts. He said, I love the podcast. It seems that all the recruiting news lately has revolved around perimeter players, especially wide receivers, and it has me worried that the team will get beat up on, in the trenches for lack of depth and be labeled as a dreaded quote unquote soft label. Uh, where are the linemen? <laughs> well, they're, 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 coming back as sophomores on the offensive line and their freshmen on the defensive line. So, you know, you had two back, I mean, basically you had back-to-back classes where they really hit uh, the linemen hard. If you don't think they've got linemen, come, you know, in the morning sometimes, stand outside of uh, Brian Kennedy Field and watch the linemen go by. And that's a group right now that we haven't, number-wise, and size-wise, and maybe just sheer number of athletes-wise, I don't think they've ever had, you know, I mean, we, were, we, we covered an awful lot of All-Americans, and I remember from the time I was a kid and knew about USC football, I was always the most impressed. As good as, you know, the quarterbacks were, and obviously as good as the running backs were, and the, you know, the safeties and all that, I always thought the the linemen were the guys that I thought, man, USC's got linemen that don't look like other people's linemen. They got these big, tall, rangy guys, these, you know, Anthony Munoz guys and, you know, way before Anthony. Right now, they have a, a nucleus of some just really big, strong, young, athletic guys. How good they're all going to be when it all shakes out, I don't know. But uh, I would say that probably impacts their recruiting uh, going forward right at this very minute. For example, you say, oh, they got to go out and get another defensive lineman. And you look at him and you say, wait a minute. Look at that six foot four, 330 pound guy who's pretty darn athletic, that Jordan Simmons guy who they've got coming in at nose tackle now. Huh. So maybe you don't go and recruit somebody just because there really are a lot of bodies in this program right now. And, uh, I wouldn't look at that as, so much a negative, you know, against the, you know, against the program right now. All right, cool. Thanks for that one, Dan. Let's go. Let's see. Next question. We'll go to Randall from Dallas, uh, down in Texas. Follow up from last week. I've asked about college players traveling to summer camps for free. I was hoping to get your opinion. How are the free camps any different than selling team awards? Truthfully speaking, only the best players are allowed at those camps. How many are from Purdue, Washington State, Wake Forest, etc.? How many of those guys get invited? You get my point. Only the best are there. How can it be illegal to sell something that you won? I'm asking uh, for opinion, so there's no right or wrong response. Thanks for answering and fight on. Huh. Um, 
I just think, you know, the NCAA's got a whole lot of rules about recruiting and all. And I was with somebody today, I think, uh, who was involved with the first uh, major seven-on-seven team in the summer that traveled. It got a big uh, story. Andy uh, Staples and Sports Illustrated wrote it. And, uh, and and that was only, you know, five or six years ago. So this has been kind of evolving in the summer, uh, you know, in terms of travel, in terms of kids. I mean, there are sophomores uh, going around visiting schools in advance and, you know, working out at, at, at different kinds of camps. And, uh, you know, obviously you saw people like uh, Jim Harbaugh, you know, push the, uh, the limit with, uh, you know, having his coaches uh, going out and working camps all over the country and, and kind of hosting them and the SEC saying that shouldn't be allowed. You know, they're coming into Florida and they're coming into Georgia and we don't like it. And, uh, that hasn't, you know, completely been, you know, in terms of exactly how they're going to, you know, regulate it all. Uh, but there are areas which uh, you could say, hey, so-and-so's got an advantage. Yeah, they do. And that's a good thing for USC. And I think <laughs> USC will always be one of those places that kids are going to want to come to. And as long as you're producing the most NFL players, and the most NFL first-rounders, and the most NFL Hall of Famers, all of which USC has done, and where USC is number one, you're always going to be, say, a kid says, oh, I'll go to this school and this school and this school. Oh, yeah, I should. I'm going to consider USC. And um, I just think that's an advantage, you know, for USC. And I don't think USC probably pushes that as hard as they could, and I'm not saying they should. But, uh, but yeah, it's an advantage. I mean, it's it's like the – I always got the sense that the SEC people were, like, mad because, well, you can't do that. You can't have, um, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Will Ferrell. You can't get Will Ferrell on the sidelines in Starkville. No, you can't. It's not fair, right? Okay, that's just life, you know. Life, you know, it's it's not going to ever be, you know, completely fair. But if you, I mean, one of the big, uh, you know, uh, kids that we really liked watching, young kid defensive back, uh, whose name Ryan will probably remind me of, was from uh, Nigel Knott. Was it not? Yeah. Uh-huh. Nigel? And he's from Starkville, Mississippi. Yeah. And so I'm guessing he probably would have rather gone to the Rising Stars camp at in Los Angeles and stay home in Starkville. Just a thought. And, you know, is that fair to, you know, the old Miss people? Probably not. Or the Mississippi State people. But if you're not even on an interstate, uh, you know, <laughs> there are some things that are not fair. Yeah, I know. I agree. And I, I think it's, it's hard when you're comparing schools. I mean, you can say, oh, well, Northwestern has like the best journalism school in the country. Is that fair? I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of, you know, positives and, and negatives and it depends on what you look at. Some people might love a small town school and some people might, uh, love a big city and it just kind of depends on, on the kid. But yeah, there's, there's definitely different opportunities for the, the better schools. Um, I mean, a place like the opening when, you know, is that an advantage for USC or, or a Texas or a Florida state where, uh, you know, those, they show those prospects on television. They show them committing to the big schools. You don't see a whole lot of smaller schools. Uh, you know, Washington State doesn't have a lot of commitments or even targets that go to the opening and ESPN puts it on TV. And is that fair? You know, it's probably not. You know, Cody Kessler got to go up there for free. He got to, you know, learn from other quarterbacks and, and see other quarterbacks. And, um, you know, it's, I, you know, is that, is that really fair? I don't know, but I, I, don't see the comparison to selling things uh, that you were given from your team because I think anyone can get those. And um, but you know, there's there's definitely things in in college football that you know some can be fair and, and some aren't. But there's just inherent differences. It can't be. It's you know, there's, it's not all black and white. There is a lot of gray. Of course, there's a lot of gray in college football. Yeah, and and you aren't allowed to sell, you know sell any of that stuff that you get. I mean, you you flat out that's against the rules. I yeah. mean, you can't do that. They keep track of how much stuff they gave you, and, uh, you know, they have to justify whatever they've given you. And uh, I know they, you know, they, what was that, the quarterback from LSU a couple of years ago, the, the police chasing home, and when they got home, he had like 100 pairs of football shoes in his in his closet. Uh, 
that is probably you're not allowed to do that. You know, you're just not allowed to do that. And and there are towns you can go into, and uh, you know, restaurants and bars and what have you, and you notice, wow, there's a lot of equipment hanging up there and signed by players. Huh? I wonder how that got there. I wonder what happened for the player who gave him the equipment. What did he get out of it? Well, yeah, that happens. It's not supposed to. And if somebody really wanted to pay attention to it in a lot of places, uh, it wouldn't be happening. But, uh, you know, but, but there are things that are against the rules and there are things that are in that gray area that Ryan mentioned. And uh, that gray area is probably always going to be there. Uh, well, Dan, so you wrote a piece and uh, I think it was a week or so ago about the uh, new documents that came to light um, that were released uh, for the NCAA documents. And there's more kind of emails and all that kind of stuff from the Todd McNair NCAA case. And we have no less than, I think, five questions kind of about that. So David Agora Hills wrote in, Steve, uh, D in the IE, Tarek, and Sean from the Bay Area. I'll try to read you a couple of these and, and maybe kind of get your your feelings. Um, David wants to know, what's your gut feeling why USC never went after the NCAA and filed the lawsuit? My, my gut feeling is USC didn't really understand what was going on. I thought they defended themselves well. It was the first case, uh, you know, for the you know the fellow who defended him out of Birmingham. I thought he did uh, uh, a pretty good job. I thought they handled everything well. I don't think they knew at the time they were being framed. Uh, they had no idea they were being framed. I think at the time we thought, you know, Paul D and. Josephine Petuto, who asked to be on the committee, the Nebraska law professor, and Missy Conboy from Notre Dame. We thought, you know, uh oh, those are problems. Turns out it was a different group, a different threesome that, uh, that got really nervous when, uh, uh, it looked like the, uh, regular members of the committee on infractions weren't gonna maybe buy the, uh, the fact that Todd McNair really didn't know anything and really should have, you know, been required to, uh, uh, you know, to report it, which he wasn't, as it turns out, by NCAA rule. And then uh, uh, they basically decided we have to come up with some sort of connection and turn it into unethical conduct, and we need a, you know, sacrificial lamb. It turned out to be, uh, you know, Todd McNair. It's why they're in so much trouble, one would think, from everything you, you read about the lawsuit and where it is and, and the way Todd's lawyers did such a magnificent job of setting the NCAA up so that they could get discovery, get those emails, get those documents, get depositions of the of the people who they ended up, you know, figuring out it was two non-voting, non-participating, supposedly, members and uh, a member of the NCAA staff whose job is to coordinate, not to, you know, convince people that somebody's guilty. And that those three took it over, and uh, I don't think USC had any idea that that happened at the time. Uh, I think Todd's lawyers had a better sense of what was going on. So I don't think USC was very well represented. Uh, and then when they talked to some outside counsel, I don't think those people really understood the NCAA uh, very well. I don't know that Pat was, had the kind of cynicism that you need to have about the NCAA. And I think they were starting a $6 billion campaign, fundraising campaign, the largest fundraising campaign in American higher education. I don't think they at all wanted to get sidetracked from that. And the new president at USC had been the previous provost at USC. And the provost office was responsible for compliance at USC. And the NCAA had, you know, in a, with a red herring, had tried to act like USC had, I guess, basically two people in that office. So few violations compared to, say, the 375 that Ohio State had for their seven people. USC had barely any violations, but they tried to pin it on, oh, if you'd only had more people uh, in the compliance office. And I always think that was a purpose pitch thrown at Max to kind of say, look, if you come after us, we're going to come after you and we're going to blame you. And I just think USC didn't want to go there. The board of trustees and people, they just didn't seem to be on top of their game. And so now you're almost five years into this thing, 
And with all that's come out, you would have to basically admit, man, we didn't see this coming. Man, we didn't we didn't get it. We didn't realize what they were doing to us. Now, somebody might say, wow, you could have read USCfootball.com, and you probably would have had an idea <laughs> of what was going on. But because we're probably not getting the millions of dollars in consulting fees that maybe some people have gotten, uh, maybe we weren't, you know, worth reading in terms of, you know, what exactly was happening. But uh, uh, I just think they missed, and now they haven't figured out a way to get back into the case. I still think there there would have been ways over the years that they could have picked their spots and gone after the NCA, not necessarily with a lawsuit. I think it is harder for the university to do a, a lawsuit than it was for Tom McNair and his situation. But I think there would have been ways in which USC could have picked their spots, uh, demanded to see all the you know, emails and documents and what have you. Uh, I think there would have been, you know, limited ways that they could have tried to force that issue, whether it's with public pressure, uh, some sort of campaign, uh, you know, putting it in front of the NCA assembly, whatever. Uh, and they did, they chose basically not to do it. They only acted quietly and behind the scenes. And as we've seen with all the other cases, the Miami, the Ohio State, the North Carolina, the Oregon, uh, all of those cases, even UCLA and, you know, basketball and what have you, those schools, you know, Miami, they put up a fight, and they threatened the NCAA. They told the NCAA, we're going to make it, you know, we're going to make life tough for you if you do this. I don't think they ever had, had the sense at the NCAA that USC was going to do that to them. So that kind of is, is kind of a general wrap-up of how we got where we got and why um kind of quick follow-up i don't want to spend too much time on this but the, a, a lot of people are asking what can usc do now people are talking about trying to get backed up to 85 scholarships for 2016 it's likely probably too late for something like that i mean i think the more time that goes by dan the less yeah. that usc can really do is there anything left you think that could happen well i think they i mean the NCA could give them back all the records tomorrow it wouldn't cost the NCA a dime you know usc can say look there is so much question about how this decision was arrived, you know, arrived at, and I would think, you know, the I would think USC might want to uh, negotiate with the NCAA because USC was forced to, uh, you know, play for three years with limited scholarships. I mean, if they went into the uh, uh, Las Vegas Bowl uh, with 44 originally recruited scholarship players available, that they were only able to practice six times out of the 15 practices allowed. Uh, that has to have a wear and tear factor on the guys who went through that. The NCA did no due diligence to make sure that you can take scholarships away from a, a collision contact sport like football and be safe. And they didn't have a chief medical officer. I don't think they did their homework in terms of, yeah, this is safe. To, you know, to penalize a team like that. And I think USC might want to say, uh, to indemnify us and our players, the NCA should probably put together some sort of lifetime coverage plan for any player that went through that time period at USC of limited scholarships so that <clears throat> for years and years they'll be taken care of medically. Uh, if anything comes along, I mean, I think that would not be in any way, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, now they're trying to, you know, get caught up on the concussion lawsuits that they're getting and all of that. I mean, I think there's always, you know, going to be a danger down the road that, that, you know, there could be a group of USC players that say, look, you know, we were really put at risk, uh, by the NCA. That as it turns out, you know, it, it wasn't even a, you know, a, a legitimate penalty, uh, you know, for legitimate wrongdoing. And I think, you know, there might be a way that USC could put some, you know, pressure on the NCAA, you know, for something like that. And, uh, you know, I just think in certain areas, I just wish USC would have, you know, focused on where can we, you know, where can we help our players, our athletes, our student athletes, uh, our fans, all of the things that, you know, that the NCAA was doing to them. And they just chose not to act in any of those. But I, I think they, they needed a strategy other than we hope, uh, 
you know, none of this comes out, and we hope uh, it just goes away. Like, you got to give them credit. The one thing, USC has survived this better than any program in America could have survived it. Alabama wouldn't have done this well if they'd have got hit the way USC did. Notre Dame wouldn't have. Uh, nobody would have. <clears throat> so it makes the case that there's something pretty special about the USC football program that they survived these years uh, and these really terrible penalties uh, as well as they have. And here they are coming out, you know, just immediately coming out of the sanctions, and there are a number of people who think they'll be in the playoffs this year. That's impossible almost when you think about it. And it says, you know, some really good things about the USC program. Uh, the best thing that USC administration has going for it in this case is that they're not on their hands and knees. You know, they're not where the NCAA wanted them to be. And, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of amazing. And one last follow-up to that. D and the IE has an interesting point. He said, it's my understanding that the NCAA has banished Reggie Bush from USC. Further, USC cannot include Reggie Bush's name or likeness in its publications, record books, etc. My question is, what is the penalty for USC ignoring the mandate? Yeah, that would be interesting. I've always uh, thought that USC should say, uh, we think that, you know, we didn't like them for the three years that we were penalized, but that's it. They're over. And, uh, and we request a hearing before the Committee on Infractions. And you're allowed to, I mean, I covered Kentucky basketball, and I know what <laughs> happens when you get penalized. And I know there were meetings at times with the Committee on Infractions where they'd go over and say, no, you're not allowed to do it. Yes, you are allowed to do it. And Kentucky would say, no, we won't want to list it this way or whatever. And I think USC, you know, really should be requesting that say, we want to change the media guide. We're not going to go, because they, you know, the NCAA told them you had to do it this way one year, you had to do it this way the next year, and they flipped it. And I think USC should say, look, those games happened. Those scores were legit. We're going back to claiming the scores and the records and Reggie's in the record book, and we're not going to be somebody that's going to, you know, be burning the record book. And, uh, you know, I do think they ought to make the case. Now, I'm not a you know, a big, you know, oh, Reggie got a bad deal. And I don't think it would be wrong to say we need to rehabilitate. I mean, a lifetime penalty? Are you kidding me? I mean, till the end of time? I mean, I do think Reggie ought to make a move to see if, you know, could he, you know, endow a scholarship at USC. Would he not be allowed to do that? I mean, I do think there might be a test case there even where USC, you know, make the case and say, look, uh, we want to be able to, you know, rehabilitate Reggie, and he wants to do some, something good for USC, and it'd be good for Reggie. I mean, you know, he missed a lot of opportunities where he could have, you know, headed off some of the problems that, you know, that came his way. But, uh, but I, I think there are places where USC could say we want to we want to change this. Uh, three years is enough. The penalty's over. No penalty should last forever. That's very true. All right. Well, one last one, Dan, from Melvin. Uh, he said, this has nothing to do with football, but it's related to last week when you spoke a lot about the, uh, the podcast, The Audible, which is Bruce Feldman and Stuart Mandel. In the episode, it was mentioned where UCLA was the most underachieving football school, uh, based on that reasoning by Bruce Feldman. Um, do you think that would mean that USC basketball would be the most underachieving basketball school? Interesting. Uh, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily agree that UCLA is the most underachieving. I, I think they, you know, I've always thought that. I mean, in my, you know, the places I've looked at, Rutgers and and uh, and Maryland are are schools that ought to have really good football programs, and it's just never. And both of them ended up in the Big Ten. Uh, as it turns out, uh, but, uh, USC basketball, I think is darn, is right on that cusp of, uh, when you think, you know, you're a mile and a half from two N NBA franchises, you're in the, you know, the best area for high school basketball now in the country. Um, and you're in a conference where you could be pretty good and you got a new facility and you got a school that everybody thinks is really cool. Uh, maybe. I think that's a, that's a really legitimate point. And you're in a school where, what it was, it 
you know, how many a dozen teams last year were in the top ten in 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 all the different sports, and fifteen of the you know eighteen were in the top you know twenty or twenty five, and then there's basketball, and uh, they've really got to figure out you know you know women's is, you know USC came on online with the best women's basketball program you know in college basketball history, and it's kind of you know gone by the wayside as well to some extent, so. Uh, They've got to figure out basketball, no question about it. And, you know, they were, I think, uh, of the 65 Power 5 conferences, basketball programs, USC might have been the third lowest attendance last year. And that's just, that's a crime to, you know, get that, you know, beautiful building and, and a great location. And it's a, it's got great accessibility. I mean, poor UCLA. You can't get to UCLA for a basketball game unless you got a helicopter. I mean, <laughs> it's not possible you know, to get there. That traffic is is beyond belief. But USC, you can get there. And it's uh it's got so much going for it. They've got to get basketball going, no question. And I think the you know what on the, what they were talking about in the Audible is really the potential, you know, being in Los Angeles for UCLA about football, um, you know, having tradition, having the recruits right in your backyard. There's so many built in uh, advantages that UCLA should be better. That's why they said it's the most underachieving. I think you could argue the same kind of things with USC recruiting and being in LA and all that kind of stuff. I guess the one caveat, Dan, is when you grow up, you know, a UCLA football fan, you're always the, the little brother to, you know, the stepbrother to USC football because there's already in the same town, there's already a huge program that's, that's well, dominated. And the hardest thing, as much as they've done, you know, with the Rose Bowl and $165 million in improvement. It's still whatever it is, twenty some miles from campus, you know, and uh, and 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 on the quarter system with this kind of student body UCLA has, their students aren't on campus for the first three games usually every year. Their band isn't here. It's a it's kind of an uphill pull, uh, you know, for for UCLA. There there are some some issues that structurally are built in that that. And the fact that they're, if they were the only team in town, that wouldn't matter. But, you know, this is such an, you know, I tell people, Los Angeles is the most unbelievable college football town ever. These people in Los Angeles built two, at the time, ultimately at least, 100,000 seat stadiums. One in 1922 and one in 1923. The Rose Bowl and the Coliseum. Think about what that took. I mean, there were only 500,000 people like in Southern California <laughs> in, that, in, in that year. And they built those two unbelievable stadiums. I mean, these are, you know, the Rose Bowl, obviously, uh, you know, the first, you know, big college football bowl game. This is kind of like really college football territory. And USC is the lead dog. There, I mean, there's no question about it, tradition and history and all that. And, uh, so I think there are some structural issues, which I would give UCLA a little bit of a pass, uh, you know, as far. But uh, but I can see what they're saying. There's an awful lot going, you know, for if you're in Southern California, uh, you got a lot going for you. There's no there's no question about it. And but on the same hand, you know, when you say UCLA is the second dog in football, you could say the same thing with USC, where they had that one year where they were like 25 and two, but didn't make the NCAA tournament because they lost to UCLA and only one team. So who knows what the USC football I mean, excuse me, USC basketball tradition would be today if then, if they, if UCLA wasn't around and they made more tournaments back then and they, they weren't the little stepbrother to UCLA basketball the same way kind of like UCLA in football. No question. And they, they organized the NCAA tournament in those days strictly geographically. So, you know, that USC team, had you put them in any other region, would have been in the Final Four, and they would have been able to start building, you know, a Final Four tradition, for example, and, and the kind of things they couldn't do. I mean, the one thing you got going for you in basketball, you don't need a whole lot of players to turn it around. You know, a really special coach, and uh, you know, a handful of players, and you're on the you're you're going. And uh, as long as you've got a place to play that really is a decent place to play, uh, you really got a shot in basketball. Whereas in football. You have to have so many things go right in football. I mean, it just takes an awful lot of things to go right. And you're, you're, there's such a head-to-head competition 
I mean, to be honest, uh, I don't think it's an, uh, a surprise that there aren't very many head-to-head true uh, competitive uh, recruiting battles between USC and UCLA. And I don't think that's because USC's backing off. Uh, I just think they get the sense they don't want to build their hopes up. I mean, it looks what happened, you know, a couple of years ago with, uh, you know, Adori and Damien and, you know, the last day and boom, 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 you know, Juju and all of a sudden, you know, UCLA's got three empty scholarships. Um, it's a hard, I think it's a much harder battle in football than it is in basketball. I think there's room for, there's room for two teams in basketball. There aren't, there aren't exactly room in football, not quite. All right. Well, Dan, hey, great stuff. Man, we went over 50 minutes. <laughs> We're trying to do like shorter segment podcasts in multiple days, but we end up doing long, longer podcasts anyway. But thanks. And I think I'm losing my voice. So uh, <clears throat> we'll let you go. Uh, that was great. No, I enjoyed those are good questions. Uh, keep them coming. We, uh, we certainly enjoy them and don't have all the answers, but we'll, we'll try to act like we do. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dan. Really appreciate it. Check, uh, check out Dan on uscfootball.com, of course. And you've been listening to the Peristyle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. And here's quick message from Michael Moline Real Estate. Most people know that buying or selling real estate is no small undertaking. Understanding the market value of your home, pricing, advertising, closing, and perhaps even selling personal property along the way are all examples of the real estate journey. And Michael Moline Real Estate has the experience to help make that journey an enjoyable one. Southern California real estate inventories are at historic lows, so there is no better time than now to sell your residential property. Whether you're moving into a bigger home or downsizing, personal property is often a component of the real estate estate transaction. Michael Moline Real Estate has industry expertise to help you with both your real property and your personal property as you get ready to transition. Michael Moline Real Estate specializes in properties located on the west side of Los Angeles and the southern San Fernando Valley communities. Allow Michael Moline Real Estate to give you a free comparative market analysis and home valuation so you know how much your home is worth today. Contact Michael Moline at michaelmolinerealestate.com. That's Michael, M-O-L-I-N-E, realestate.com. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 